This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. Communities across the state are assessing the damage following Monday's storm. Heavy rain and winds led to flooding in many areas. NHPR's Paul Kuno Booth spent some time in the harder-hit areas of the state this week following that storm, and he joins us now. Good morning, Paul. Morning, Rick. What kind of damage did the storm cause, and, and what areas were affected the most? Yeah, so on Monday, you know, the state saw record high temperatures for this time of year, and the combination of heavy rains and melting snow caused rivers to rise rapidly, especially in the North Country and and White Mountain areas. Those um, areas in particular saw heavy flooding. Uh, Dozens of roads had to be closed. First responders also rescued several people who were stranded along the Saco River in Conway. And in Plymouth, you know, several people got stuck when they tried to drive through flooded roadways. The waters were largely receding Tuesday, but uh, as of Wednesday, something like 13 roads were still shut down because of damage from the storm. The State Department of Transportation said one of them, Route 302 in Hart's location, where a bridge washed out, could take a week to repair. And a lot of people are saying that this storm was did the most damage since Hurricane Irene back in 2011, in fact. How are state and local officials responding to this? So, you know, in Campton, which is one of the places that was really affected by the flooding, emergency officials did evacuate some residents Monday as a precaution. The town actually put a few of those families up in a hotel overnight, but everyone had returned to their homes as of Tuesday. Um, Governor Chris Sununu toured some of the affected areas yesterday. He's also said he's assessing whether the storm will trigger federal disaster aid. Now, you and NHPR producer Jackie Harris were in Plymouth and Campton earlier this week. What were you hearing from people right there on the ground? Yeah, so we were up there on Tuesday, the day after all this flooding happened. The water was already receding by that point. Uh, People said things were getting back to normal, but uh, a number of roads were still closed. You know, an exit off I-93 was still completely underwater. Um, As you said, Rick, you know, local residents said this was some of the most severe flooding they'd seen since uh, Hurricane Irene in 2011. And it, it did disrupt daily life up there. You know, as I said, some residents had to leave their homes temporarily. Many roads were closed and, and people had to take detours. You know, some people had had flooded basements or their property was covered with, you know, mud and debris. Residents said, you know, they're actually pretty used to flooding in that part of the state. You know, one mentioned a state highway near Plymouth that closes at least once a year. But uh, this was obviously much, uh, much greater than than normal. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are thinking about winter tourism. You know, for a lot of us here in in Concord South, I mean, we didn't have any snowpack to melt, but they lost a lot of snow up there, and, you know, ski season had begun. That's that's true. And and a number of ski areas, you know, in the state did close after the storm, which, uh, as you said, melted snow and, and affected some of their facilities. Uh, most of those areas have since reopened. Others are planning to open in the coming days. But, you know, one local business owner we talked to said the flood damage and the lack of snow could have an impact. This is Dave Levin, who owns the Mad River Coffee House in Campton. You know, I do uh, a lot of business with Waterville Valley and the, the ski resort itself. And I know they had some damage up there and we're waiting to see what happens with uh, tourist traffic over the next holiday week and how that's affected. Yeah, that's going to be tough going into the, the holiday week here with, with Christmas and kids on vacation. And of course, ski areas hoping for, you know, a, a big week. Absolutely. We'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that. Let's turn our attention to uh, something else that's been on your beat, Paul. New Hampshire saw a rise in the number of people experiencing homelessness in 2022. That's according to the latest report from the nonprofit New Hampshire Coalition to End Homelessness. What are some of the driving factors for this increase? Well, I don't think this will come as news to many listeners, but New Hampshire continues to have a real shortage of available housing and rents are continuing to skyrocket. You know, this year, the median rent for a two-bedroom apartment in New Hampshire is more than $1,700. 
that's up 11% just since last year, and, and that's just not affordable for many people. At the same time, early in the COVID-19 pandemic, there were a lot of policies that likely helped some people stay in their homes, various forms of financial aid, as well as federal eviction protections. Those programs have been expiring over the past two years, so the New Hampshire Coalition to End Homelessness says that's likely one reason we saw a big jump in 2022. Now, this report also found a rise in people experiencing chronic and unsheltered homelessness. What are the risk factors for them? It's worth remembering that homelessness can look different for different people. Some people might sleep on friends' couches after losing their housing. Others are in a shelter or, or might end up living outdoors. And, you know, lacking any shelter or being without permanent housing for a long time, that can really take a toll physically and mentally. It, it can also make people more vulnerable, of course, to the elements and to crime. So that's a particular concern this report pointed out. How does New Hampshire compare to other parts of the country? So the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development recently released data from uh, what it calls its point-in-time count. This is an annual measure of how many people are experiencing homelessness at a given moment. It's done every January. Nearly every state saw homelessness go up between January 2022 and January 2023. But New Hampshire had the largest percentage increase of any state at 53 percent. The coalition's report says the solutions really circle back to housing, you know, more permanent supportive housing, as well as building more affordable housing in general. And Paul, as we wrap up this year, I'm going to ask you to look back a little bit. What were some of the most memorable stories on your beat in 2023? Yeah, it's been a busy year, uh, but I'll mention a couple. You know, 2023 was the first legislative session since the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. Of course, that really raised the stakes on state-level abortion policy decisions and how lawmakers in New Hampshire were thinking about the issue. So that was a major story of the year. Another is mental health. Uh, Earlier this year, a federal judge ordered the state to stop using hospital emergency rooms to hold people while they wait for mental health beds to open up. You know, uh, addressing this problem is going to take a lot of investments in our mental health system in the coming years. Uh, And then just coming out of the pandemic, you know, health care organizations across the board are still experiencing workforce shortages, and that's really limiting capacity. That's another major story is how, you know, healthcare organizations as well as state policymakers are trying to address the, the workforce shortage. NHPR's health and equity reporter, Paul Kunobuth. Paul, thank you. Thank you, Rick. State and federal officials are responding to an increase in reported acts of hate and extremism. NHPR's Todd Bookman has been following this, and he joins us now. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, Rick. Five synagogues in New Hampshire and and hundreds nationwide, in fact, have reported receiving bomb threats in the past week. Todd, can you tell us more about those threats? Sure. So the FBI um, has been pretty tight-lipped about this. What we do know is that uh, the New Hampshire synagogues appear to have received all the same email sometime last Sunday. Uh, The email claimed that there were bombs placed inside of their respective synagogues. Uh, This was pretty quickly determined to be a hoax. Um, Sometimes this is called a SWAT, an effort to get the SWAT team to respond to to kind of a fake threat. Um, Law enforcement did sweep at least one facility, I've been told. But again, this was determined to be a hoax pretty quickly as just the sort of sheer number of synagogues that received similar emails uh, last weekend and early this week became clear. I've seen estimates as high as like 200, 300, 400 different synagogues across the country all received sort of this this vaguely similar threat. Todd, what were you hearing from, from folks who have been affected by by those threats? Yeah, I, I spoke with Rabbi Robin Nafshi on Tuesday about this. She leads Temple Beth Jacob in Concord. 
And, you know, members of her congregation and, and she herself were, were shaken by this. It is, it's one thing to hear about an anti-Semitic threat somewhere else. It's one thing to read about it in the paper, but it is another thing she said to sort of be the target yourself, even when it's a hoax like this. Uh, she said it really does have an impact. I imagine it changes the tone of just about everything. Yeah, and she's been really thankful. She told me that uh, law enforcement has responded thoroughly and swiftly. She said Concord PD has been sweeping in front of her synagogue, regular uh, sort of check-ins, and have become a, a visible presence, which is giving her and the congregation a lot of comfort. And we know that's happening at, at uh, places of worship around the state. We, we've heard about and seen police take a more uh, proactive approach to try to give these communities of faith uh, more comfort that, that they're being protected. So, Todd, federal and local officials are responding, trying to give some peace of mind. What else are they saying? Yeah, well, regarding this specific hoax, the FBI says it's investigating. Uh, we don't know a ton more about where that investigation may stand at the moment. It was interesting because also this week, the the state attorney general and the U.S. attorney, they, they happened to have a previously scheduled event about the uptick in bias that we've seen in the state. And these top law enforcement officials, they really wanted to make it clear that there's going to be sort of this zero tolerance policy for acts of hate, uh, for people who, who cross the line from protected free speech uh, to what they would consider sort of an act that can be prosecuted. You know, the message from law enforcement is that they want to help. They want to be there to provide some level of comfort to communities of faith. And they also stressed this isn't just anti-Semitism. They know that uh, Islamic communities have also felt threats and that other groups have felt threats. And the law enforcement message here was really they want to be a partner to protect people in these times. The Attorney General's office is once again taking legal action against the, that, that white supremacist group, NSC-131, that we've been hearing about. What are the details of that case? Yeah, this is, has been an ongoing effort by the state to to try and rein in NSC-131. This is a group that is active in the region. They've done a lot of visible protests. Um, they've organized online. And, and this summer, some members of the group, they allegedly went to Concord. They were there to try and disrupt a drag time story hour. This was scheduled for inside the Teetotler Cafe on Main Street in Concord. And essentially what the state is arguing in this new filing is that this group went beyond protected free speech. This wasn't about a, a right to protest. They're essentially arguing that these members, uh, you know, they were banging on the windows of this business. They were yelling threats. They were uh, making Nazi salutes. And therefore, that they had sort of gone beyond uh, acceptable free speech and were targeting this place of public accommodation and trying to shut down this event. And, and the argument the state's going to make uh, they're going to try to make is that this has violated the state's uh, civil anti discrimination statute. Now, the AG did previously bring civil charges against this group before. Where does that case stand? Right. This is the second time they've, they've brought charges against NSC-131. The first case had to do with a, a banner in Portsmouth that the group hung on a bridge last year. Uh, the banner said, Keep New England White. It's a bit technical. The state argued the group was trespassing and violated a local ordinance when it zip-tied the sign to the fence and because it was motivated to do so by racial animus that it had violated the Civil Rights Act. A superior court judge, though, has rejected that argument. He said that, you know, while the speech may be abhorrent, the state has essentially pushed their legal argument too far that the trespassing claim doesn't hold up. And so the superior court judge actually dismissed this civil rights charge, uh, but the state has appealed. So that's now before the state Supreme Court. All right, Todd, we're wrapping up 2023 soon. Looking back, what were some of the, the stories that, that stand out to you from uh, from this year? 
you know, what we've just been talking about has really consumed a lot of, of the state's energies, how they're responding to acts of bias and acts of hate. Uh, it has become a really major focus for the attorney general's office. They're beefing up their staff. The U.S. attorney's office is doing the same. It, you know, at this point, I think you can make the argument that it hasn't really translated into any tangible actions yet in terms of a meaningful decline in acts of bias. We've heard you know, this year that the state is on track to set a record for, for what it considers recorded acts of bias in the state. So th th this really has been a major story of 2023, and I, I would expect it to continue into into next year. All right, Todd. Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to end on that note. I'm wondering about some other stories that maybe you are f looking forward to covering in, in the coming year. There is an election coming up, Rick. You may have heard about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I yeah, do think heard. that um, 2024 is going to be a year where, where we in the NHPR newsroom are watching really closely how I guess you would say the, the wheels of democracy are, are handling it. Are they staying on the tracks or not? I think that's going to be the big question in 2024. It's going to be a really interesting race to watch next month. And then throughout the whole summer, we'll see the, the national campaign. And there's going to be a lot of interesting races at, at the state level. Uh, Chris Sununu not running again, so we're going to get a new a new governor in, in 2024. So so I think politics, uh, like it or not, are going to be the, the major story of, of the next year. I'm, I think you're absolutely right, of course. I think 24 is going to be a pivotal year, no doubt. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, Rick. Todd Bookman is a senior reporter for NHPR. You can find more of his reporting and, in fact, all the stories that we talked about this morning at nhpr.org. Now, we're going to take a break next Friday, but we're back in the new year, as always. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is NHPR. <laughs> 